And then I had the opportunity to, to join AmSurge as the first ever CIO in 2007. And it was uh, just a tremendous organization, a disruptor focused on bringing safe surgical procedures to a lower site of service in a community or an ambulatory surgery center. And as medical innovation continues to provide more and more opportunities to do so, it allowed many others to to continue to drive value, true value in the healthcare industry. Have you ever wished you had a healthcare provider on speed dial? Someone you could call to validate your product market fit. Someone to listen and help you see your solution differently. Welcome to Healthcare Market Matrix, a podcast to help you see your market clearly. We dive deep into the challenges faced by healthcare organization leaders that technology has the chance to help them solve. It's all about gaining the kind of understanding you need to effectively connect with your market. Join us as we explore the healthcare market matrix. Welcome everybody to Healthcare Market Matrix, and I am excited today to welcome Eric Thrailkill, who has served as CIO at three publicly traded healthcare companies in his tenure, and uh, and now is leading his own firm, Ali Health uh, Ali Advisory Services, where he accelerates growth through strategic partnerships and bringing an ecosystem approach to strategy. What I can tell you about Eric aside from the formalities, is he is certainly one of the most generous humans I know uh, with his time, with his wisdom, and uh, sharing the meaning of his experience and his commitment to collaboration is really evident in a number of meaningful ways. He uh, has a lot of involvement in a number of professional organizations, and his role as chairman of Project Healthcare in the Nashville, as a part of the Nashville Entrepreneurs Center is uh, is a remarkable involvement where he has had the opportunity to impact a number of organizations. And he is also um, in the third year of leading the Telehealth Academy. And uh, we're going to hear more about that later, but that's something if you have, if you touch telehealth in any way, shape or form, something that you're going to want to make note of and take part in this coming year. Eric, we are so thrilled to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot, John, to, to you and your team. And, and I feel, uh, you know, committed to the industry and, and to the community in which I've enjoyed being a part of for 40 plus years. So thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, I am, um, you know, and I, I hear this from other people too, not independent of my own experience, but it is, um, when I, when I see somebody who has experienced as much as you have in the context of healthcare, be willing to continue to invest and, and and continue to work to try and improve the ecosystem for everybody involved. It's it's just such an encouragement to me. I would love to hear some of your journey. You know, re- rewinding and 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 take us back a little bit to um to how you know how what was your journey to that CIO role and uh, and. Yeah, give us the highlights of that of that trip because I know there's a lot going on. Yeah, no, I'm happy to do it. And I'd I'd say it at the outset, I've got sort of a non-traditional career path into uh, healthcare CIO. I'm an accountant by education, University of Florida, 
studied accounting, became a CPA, worked at one time with one of the big eight firms, Touche Ross, that was merged into Deloitte. And, and that was the firm that actually brought me to Nashville in, in 1983. I stayed 11 years with that firm and being in Nashville for the bulk of that career, most of the work that, that we were doing on the firm side was in the healthcare industry, a, a, a number of just notable, reputable clients. And that really triggered my interest in that particular industry. I worked for a couple of companies before AmSurge, but uh, FICOR was one of those, a pioneer, perhaps 25 years before its time in physician practice management in the 90s. And then a company that was known as America Service Group, now known as Corizon, that was a leader in the provision of health services for inmates in prisons and jails. And, And in that company, you learn a lot about um, uh, caregiver needs. You learn a lot about the special relationship between those that are listening, relieving pain, and caring for in- individuals in a very vulnerable population. And then I had the opportunity to, to join AmSurge as the first ever uh, CIO in 2007. And it was uh, just a tremendous organization, 15 years old at the time, a disruptor in the fact that the company was focused on uh, bringing uh, safe surgical procedures to a lower site of service in a community or an ambulatory surgery center. And as medical innovation continues to provide more and more opportunities to do so, it allowed that company and many others to, to continue to drive value, true value in the healthcare industry. So my my background, education as accountant, a lot of finance roles, an appreciation for strategy and business models, and then surrounding myself with uh, individuals that were sharp on the technical side of uh, of information technology. So what I know about the the CIO role is that it has a whole lot to do with value. I mean, you have to be making decisions for the organization and it is directly related. So, you know, I understand the accountant piece because there's a lot of equations that you have to factor through. I've got to think to make those decisions in ways that uh, have the best benefit to the organization. Is that how, how, how would you, you know, talk about your experience in that regard and how that has worked itself out? No, it's it, it's it's a great question and it's a good observation and it was something that frankly I always enjoyed. So I, I love the strategy part of of a business operation. Uh, Amsurge is is a unique company and that uh, when I started with them in two thousand seven and still primarily today, uh, the company is comprised of individual partnerships with physicians that own and operate ambulatory surgery centers and value to those individual partnerships that translated to value to patients and payers of those health services is is all around how do you deliver both clinical administrative and technology solutions in a shared services format at a very good price that's as competitive or more competitive than they could receive from the outside but had a actually a higher quality level in the service delivery and a lot of my time was spent with listening and learning from others in clinical roles or in operations roles or in business development roles about how we could use technology as a company 
and therefore differentiate in partnership with physicians in that regard. So talk to us a little bit about kind of a, you know, you're giving us a sense of it, but give us a, an idea of a day in the life. Like what, what are some of the factors, the, you know, as, as you're looking at that role and how you're, you're uh, interfacing with the rest of the organization, you, you just said, I'm, I'm doing a lot of learning. I'm listening. I'm, I'm trying to understand what are some of the problems that we have and how can we solve them? What, uh, what did that look like? How did it work itself out? Yeah, I think I think key was ensuring that we had a top flight motivated team of individuals. And I was fortunate to out of the blocks um, be with a team and then to continue to grow that team that was was dedicated uh, to the work uh, that we were doing. Um, I would, I'd probably say I spent 80 plus percent of my time learning and listening and in corporate meetings and very purposely trying to understand the business as, as much as I could. And it's it's an extraordinary amount of time. I think if you had a survey of CIOs, you'd say that they spend a lopsided amount of time working with senior management and others in their organization to better understand the business and the capabilities that, that IT could bring. Um, I... I'm a big believer in investing in education and conferences and events and associations, whether those are in our community or society, because it just, again, enables that learning to occur. I'm fortunate to, to be with some IT leaders that um, we, we spent a lot of time together um, in the battle uh, professionally, but we spent a lot of time outside of work getting to know each other and and really trying to build, you know, a team and a culture that others that we were recruiting wanted to be a part of. And it's probably um, overlooked. It's very, very difficult in today's times. And, and uh, I have a lot of empathy for those that are in that seat today, uh, moving through really tremendous workforce challenges. But it's something that that will consume a lot and does require a lot of a leader's uh, time to to ensure that it's a safe place to work in a in a learning environment where professionals can can get better with what they're doing. Part of the the, the greatest um, tribute that you see is folks that you used to work with move on in CIO roles or elevate to to VP level roles or stay within the industry and migrate maybe to an operations or business development role. And it's really satisfying to know that we were a small part of their professional development. I can imagine. What would you, as, as you look at um, your tenure there, what would, what would be some of the, the key abilities, you know, your, some of the things you brought to the picture that might've been superpowers or things that that role ideally has that, helps a person be successful in that role? Yeah, I think I, I think that's a good question. I, I think giving them the time and space and encouraging professional development and community professional activities is, uh, is one of the best things that an individual can do. I, w- I was fortunate to be with a senior management team, our CEO and our CFO and executive leaders encouraged all of us. To, to be visible in the community, to participate in community organizations, to attend conferences, 
to even host. Amsterdam is a great facility for being able to host an event and bring those events and those learnings together. You know, when I uh, joined Amsurge, it was 2007, and it was prior to the High Tech Act, which was really responsible for, as a country, us moving from a small percentage of Americans' clinical histories documented in electronic health records to now uh, a large number. And federal funds as part of the stimulus bill, the ARA Act of, of 2009, were made available to healthcare and helping the company navigate these very complex business relationships with physicians and at the same time sort of improve our abilities to ensure clinical documentation that leads almost 100% of the time to safer procedures and higher quality and good documentation on, on the revenue cycle side was a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. and without being surrounded by a team that was always about learning and contributing and getting some personal reward for the projects that we were doing, it would have been really, really difficult. So really staying connected, what I'm hearing is staying connected to the community you're serving in a lot of different ways is, a, is an important piece. Yes. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me about you, Eric, at all. <laughs> um, so what I know in, in this realm is that, uh, especially today, that the CIO is one of the most targeted, um, I guess, the targeted entities for young health tech companies trying to get a foot into the provider space. They, the CIO is almost always a stakeholder for a tech, technology solution um, moving into that arena. I'm curious, as you were in that role as you were considering vendors and if you and as you were um, looking at different opportunities and options and weighing the importance and and how you would look at implementing them what what is effective for an organization to do and what just really didn't work if if somebody was interested in uh, getting noticed if they were interested in uh, in getting your ear in some way, shape, or form to communicate an, a solution that they had, what works and what doesn't? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a good question. I, I also think it's a, a good time maybe to chat just a little bit about the convergence of a number of factors that actually improves the opportunities for early stage companies or smaller organizations that have a real technical solution uh, to be of greater benefit, maybe today than it, than it was a decade ago. Um, again, when I started at AmSurge, very few healthcare organizations had migrated their data centers and their data uh, to the cloud. And um, of, of primary interest to anyone selling into a CIO would have been security and privacy. And was it an application that would fit into the, to the tech stack of, of the organization. Um, secondarily, I think like so many other healthcare uh, businesses that are based in Nashville, enterprise scale is something that's front and center. So many organizations really wouldn't entertain something on maybe the low end or early stage or small size company because they didn't they wouldn't believe that they had the firepower to 
continue to support and roll out those solutions on a national basis. So right out of the box, it might have eliminated some very good founders with excellent tech solutions that lack the enterprise scale. Um, probably best if you ask maybe what doesn't work, it's never really worked. And in, in my opinion for me is just um, a use of email um, and bombarding <laughs> without you know, a clear message and an understanding of, of where the value proposition actually was. If there was um, an introduction or an opportunity to listen to a story, I, I like to learn. So I probably spent a lopsided amount of time exploring and listening um, where, you know, perhaps maybe many of my peers wouldn't have done that without, you know, a, a better reason uh, to do so. And I, and I think a lot for the early stage companies, and, and we're seeing this now sort of post-pandemic, the, the regional conferences, the events, um, the opportunities to uh, attend, you know, true learning activities and um, in some of these situations where you can meet up with individuals that are decision makers is, is, a, is a grand opportunity. Yeah, things like the hosted buyer meetings at some of these events that we're seeing, and absolutely, I think that that is a great <clears throat> that is a great opportunity and and important because you know what I know is when you're in in that role, it's hard to I mean you've got a lot of elements that you have purview over and staying up on every new instance and and uh, uh, and way of doing things is not necessarily uh, an approachable goal, and so having those opportunities to say, Hey, you know, here's another way to look at this or another way to think about it. Those, those are important moments. A lot of times. I do. I do think um, that we relied on and put in place a couple of enterprise agreement. One was with a clinical uh, system vendor, and then one was with a revenue cycle and, and sort of back end office uh, vendor. And those relationships were central to the success and, and I think in large part um, are still with the company today and, and how they use them. So those key vendors that you could continue to work with and help them in future product strategy and, and really forming, you know, not just a supplier um, of a service and the recipient of a service or a product, but a, a true partnership approach, both financially as well as insight into the product strategy uh, is key. I think the other thing that's that's occurring now, this convergence of cloud compute storage capabilities that are exponentially increasing uh, the opportunities for early stage companies combined with what I'll call favorable government influence, and, and that would be generally bipartisan support for interoperability, bridging different presidential administrations, things like the 21st Century Cures Act, with data exchanges, creating the national framework, a lot of interoperability standards, again, supported by, by both parties and bridging administrations is driving a lot of the, the innovation. And then finally on this topic, I'd say um, we're at a time where innovation internally by large healthcare systems was maybe an afterthought or maybe secondary or maybe something that happened tangentially or in the corner or had a low amount of funding. And now, John, I think you can appreciate this. There is no way for 
any contemporary healthcare provider organizations that's facing the fiercest headwinds ever, in my opinion, in the United States healthcare history to stay contemporary on the pace of change that's occurring on the tech side. And so now it's almost a requirement to try to figure out what that model looks like to address current operations, but also have a foot in the future and really partner on some of the innovation that's occurring almost overnight to to reduce uh, a lot of the challenges that that exist in the industry. And and frankly, I'm really excited about that. In my role at Project Healthcare and working with community leaders, I see uh, new receptivity, um, new opportunities for flourishment of of partnerships to really drive the industry forward. Yeah, and you have an interesting seat in that realm right now, both as an advisor, as an investor, as a as a leader of um, you know a lot of innovation ecosystems. I'm curious to know what are you seeing as some of the biggest challenges right now? I mean, we there there's plenty of them, but the, what are some of the biggest challenges? And what are you and when you talk about that? level of innovation, what what you're seeing come across that, you know, big ideas solving big problems. What are what are some of the things that you're excited about? Yeah, it, maybe maybe start a little bit with the with the challenges today. I'd I'd say number one, you know, no no surprise here. Every organization is facing just tremendous workforce challenges. Um, the a lot of the demand uh, for healthcare services that that took a backseat, you know, during the past three years of the pandemic is is renewing. Consumer expectations are very different than they were uh, before the pandemic, and the clinical workforce and and the administrative workforce that's in the industry today is just tired, exhausted, and perhaps no longer has the degree of joy in practicing whether that's clinically or administratively as they did before. And this is, this is obviously a, a, a significant uh, issue. I'd also say, uh, uh, since, since my career so long, um, when, I, when I started, um, all of the major stakeholders pretty much stayed within their lanes. And you had provider organizations and payer organizations, insurance companies, you had pharma organizations and, and you had some role for the government to play with Medicare and Medicaid and setting some of the standards that exist in the industry. There is a tremendous blurring of the lines today. Payer organizations are acquiring physician practices. Physician organizations are banding together to take risk for certain insurance products and certainly impacting Medicare where almost half or a little slightly over half of Medicare beneficiaries are now in a managed care plan. Um, small organizations, digital and virtual first organizations are a real threat. Um, and we've seen consumer expectations with, with, these, um, with these technologies uh, be a real benefit uh, when, when getting to a physical place of service was a real challenge uh, in the last three years. And then finally, I'd say that uh, retailers, CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, uh, Best Buy Health, Dollar General, Kroger Health, Kroger. 
um, that were largely dismissed maybe a decade ago because they were starting at the low end of low acuity services by traditional incumbent organizations have now had their day and they're acquiring large value-based physician practices like Village MD and Oak Street. They're gearing up for truly taking risk and participating in Medicare Advantage. They've set a high bar for consumer expectations, being able to see a provider, share information, receive prescriptions, perform telehealth and virtual care visits. And now this challenge of from incumbent organizations, how do we really work or perhaps partner with retailers that now have set a very high bar for consumer expectations is a, is a very real one. So in that realm, as, as you're looking at, so definitely uh, some mega trends there, as you are looking at uh, companies that are working to solve some of the problems, you know, so looking at, and from the provider perspective, companies that are looking to jump in and say, okay, let's take a look at this, this particular problem. Is there a, a technology or are there things that you're seeing come forward that have your attention as really promising and, and able to make some, some big dents in some of those issues? Yeah, I, I do. Um, uh, you know, one is anything that can reduce the, what we'll call the clinician burden that exists today um, would be an, an instantaneous benefit. Um, providers now are spending maybe upwards of half of their time, many hours at night and on the weekends with documentation documentation, and their electronic <laughs> health records. And there's a lot of companies that are thinking about how to do that better, even ambient you know, documentation in, in certain situations. And the tech has improved. And again, with, with cloud compute and storage capabilities, um, there's ways in which um, many companies are are addressing that issue. I think the other one on the on the provider side and and really providers and payers, there's a lot of friction that exists between those two primary stakeholders. Um, things like prior authorizations or denied claims or submitting a claim or EOBs and and management of these really rigorous high friction transactions on the revenue cycle side. Uh, many companies are are building sort of middle layer platform capabilities uh, to reduce that friction and enable lower expense on the provider side, a better consumer experience, and and hopefully a, a better payment mechanism for the provision of services. I like those two areas. I've uh, we're seeing a lot of companies really invest in the true drivers of health. I'm a fan of the Christensen Institute um, that has, has sort of maybe changed the the title a little bit. You might have heard of social determinants of health and and the the real factors plus individual risk behaviors that determine eighty percent of our longevity and quality of life. And traditionally, healthcare has not addressed those factors or those true drivers of health. Um, so uh, tech to support ordering and referral services of community or social-based uh, services that can be delivered that are targeting those drivers of health or social determinants of health 
and a and an intersection, I think, of fintech and health tech around eligibility and payment and support for what I'll call non-traditional services. So things like food and nutrition and housing support, caregiver support, transportation, all important factors in enabling a population of people to receive the kind of care uh, that they need, but somewhat difficult to navigate uh, without uh, without the right uh, technologies there. And in that, yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly... A, a whole lot of activity going around each one of those fields. I know that you have a particular interest and have spent a lot of time in and around uh, telehealth, digital health universe. And clearly the pandemic uh, rapidly accelerated the adoption of that universe uh, and, and the things related to it. Uh, we just saw unprecedented movement in the, in the space, which has been really excited, exciting in a lot of ways and absolutely necessary in others. Um, but talk about that er- arena a little bit too and what you're seeing as some of the, uh, the, the critical components that are coming forward in, in that realm. Yeah, no, great question. And you know, at the onset of the public health emergency and the, the official date of the end of the public health emergency was May 11th with a 151 <laughs> day uh, timeframe to sort of unwind a lot of the waivers that were put in place that made the adoption of those technologies um, capable. So almost overnight, you know, two-way video visits, the ability to have a phone call or a FaceTime and get reimbursed at, at, at parity for that particular service, the prescription of certain medications without seeing the provider in person on the front end, um, telehealth performed you know, in in a big way. And CIOs and peers and technology uh, solutions were, as you said, John, rolled up, rolled out overnight, where as a country, we might have gone from low single digit percentage of telehealth and virtual care to maybe upwards of 85% in in many markets. I think the, the real challenge now is, were those solutions optimized for true hybrid care, which a lot of us believe is, is, is our future. Some combination of virtual and in-person care, certain service obviously you know, can only occur in a physical location, but there are many elements within healthcare, even pre-op and post-op services that, that can be done in a telehealth or a virtual care setting. But because those solutions were rolled out so rapidly, they were generally were a two-way video, they lacked integration with documentation, they didn't incorporate maybe an interpreter or a family care member, and they weren't optimized the way in which healthcare operates today or could operate in a far more efficient way. So I, I see a lot of companies, there's still a lot of opportunity there. A lot of companies focused on data exchanges, um, a platform to support multiple specialists, the ability to bring in a specialist or an interpreter or a family member during a visit to relieve the documentation burden. So if we were on a telehealth visit, I wouldn't have to turn around and, and key in what we're talking about now, but we would be able to document that encounter at the same time. Um, the the intersection with medication history and access to diagnostic results and images within that visit, all of those things 
we're just really early on, but have full expectations that the that the industry will adopt. There are still many of the waivers were extended, hospital at home waivers, some certain CMS uh, payment waivers, um, narcotics, as an example by the DEA, were extended for a period of time, but will still be left uh, to Congress and policymakers uh, and and payment regulation to see if those extensions that that have occurred will become permanent. And again, I'm hopeful, but many people believe that um, with those extensions and giving healthcare really the ability to adopt these tools without the limitations uh, that existed pre-pandemic is a real key to unlocking a lot of value in healthcare. What uh, this would be a good time, uh, a good opportunity for us to touch base quick around Telehealth Academy. So tell us. So this has been a, I, I, I'd call it a passion project of yours, uh, bringing this out of the ground, and uh, and now we're in its third year. Tell us a little bit about what the Telehealth Academy is, what you're hoping to see happen as it is as we grow and and that conversation expands. No, thanks for thanks for bringing that up. So in partnership with the Disruption Lab and Sage Growth Partners. In 2021, we put to, together a series of events that had expert speakers. Seven of those eight events, three-hour events, were conducted virtually, and one was in person in November of 2021. And it really enabled the organization to have these really good, up-to-date conversations around what was happening in regard to the fast implementation of these telehealth and virtual care solutions, including digital solutions. Year two, 2022, we did just two virtual events and then one full day uh, event in Nashville. And we were really interested in learning from leading health systems like HCA Healthcare and LifePoint Health here in Nashville. Ardent Health Services participated as well, along with the Mayo Clinic, along with Intermountain Healthcare, Banner Health, um, many others. Uh, from around the country participated in Nashville. And and you had the benefit of what Nashville does really well, which is knows how to have a good time around an interesting topic, but to actually bring the people together to have the conversations. And we've had an overwhelming demand uh, by the sponsors and the participants and the speakers to, uh, to do that again. So our third year is uh, themed scaling impact. So now we're about not only just implementing those solutions, but optimizing those solutions and really scaling those for for impact in terms of access and equity and lower cost and and better clinical outcomes, safer experiences for patients. So we're excited. It's going to be uh, held during Nashville Healthcare Sessions Week. Um, Our date will be September the 21st during that week. There's a, a ton of activity with with the organizers, the Nashville Healthcare Council, and several other events for those of you that are outside of Nashville to to give us a visit during that week and and leave uh, educated and inspired and and we welcome you into the community. Our telehealth academy is really designed for the innovators, the health systems, the technology companies, policy, payment, uh, expertise, uh, clinical leaders. We'll have sessions on medical education and the future of education and how it needs to change to to create the workforce of the future that we believe will be in a hybrid care environment. And yeah, I would say that 
make sure that everybody knows that this is in Nashville, but not just for Nashville. Everybody's welcome and would benefit to be there. There's going to be some great uh, thought leaders that'll be taking part of that, and and it'll be a a very valuable time for anybody who's touching that that realm. It's an important part of our of healthcare's future, and uh, really grateful for your work in in working to pull that together. Which kind of leads me into my next question, Eric. You you've said several times in the context of our uh, conversation here. Um, the importance of getting out there in the community, importance of uh, of of convening. I, I know that you are uh, one of the great conveners in our community, and uh, and you value collaboration and partnerships. You're part of the uh, our advisory board here at Golden Spiral, and and I'm and and many other uh, ways that you're seeking to um, bring people together to. I, I would say to solve problems, to move the field of healthcare ahead. Talk about uh, the importance of collaboration, the importance of partnerships, the importance of crossing lines and and uh, bringing people together. How have you seen that uh, transform the field, and how how what's your hope for that in the context of the future? Yeah, thanks for that. And you know, I'm I'm. I'm biased in in this regard, but I'm a a big fan of the history of what this community, uh, the healthcare community that's in Nashville, uh, but also uh, Nashville uh, and surrounding areas is a place where these conversations can be held. Uh, If you haven't seen the Ken Burns documentary on the origin of country music, it might date back to singers and songwriters and studio musicians who gathered and shared shared songs, wrote together, maybe did it without really understanding the revenue and the impact of that, but built the culture that exists today in an ecosystem to support that particular industry. Um, we've been fortunate that that HCA was founded 53 years ago and is a real pillar uh, in the community. And, and from that, several hundred, if not thousand companies have, have been created. And decades of and generations of experts within the industry are really willing to share their time and their experience knowing that if if we as a as an industry can improve in a lot of different areas and tackle these macro challenges then then we will all benefit we'll all benefit clinically we'll all benefit from a cost standpoint we'll all benefit from access to to high quality care um, I, I think I love to learn. So when I attend conferences or hymns events or uh, health events or Vive events, I love to see the stages. I'd like to hear from the contemporary speakers. I like to hear those that are addressing challenges. And, and, and I've found that uh, you can have a handshake or a conversation or send an email or have a hallway conversation and follow up on that. And that could produce in and of itself a new network member, a network node, if you will, and a new opportunity to, to continue the conversation. So I think it's a, it's a time when traditional healthcare incumbent provider organizations might have been a little bit proprietary with their secret sauce of how they actually did things to opening up a little bit and sharing those problems. I think you said it well, John, is like, what are those real pain points? And there are many that these health systems are identifying 
and knowing that they they might not be able to solve them all or any of them without a true partnership approach. What I'm excited about on the on the tech front and and maybe we'll talk about some of the the leading technologies coming up here too. But you can be an early stage company with an enterprise grade uh, tech backbone and be very very helpful to a lot of these organizations that are that are looking to solve some of these challenges and let that health system think about how to scale that impact across its domain and if that's really our role at project healthcare is we have an accelerator program but we also have partners in the community that really help the founders and the entrepreneurs understand these these problems at a deep and personal level and collaboration is just something that I, I think all of us need to take out a little bit more time for in our days. It's valuable. Um, I love to engage in, in in conversations, and I love to continue to learn. And um, I think it it benefits the companies in both directions that are a part of that. Yeah, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. And there are, I mean the reality of the problems that we're facing right now and the things that we have to overcome it is not if it if we try and do it in silos if we try and uh optimize certain profit centers and, and to the neglect of others i mean it, it really is a moment for the community to draw together and say okay how are we going to do this because the alternatives uh, you know there there's there's not any good alternatives we really do need to, this is a moment where when we look at the curves and what is getting ready to happen on the horizon, um, as the patient population increases in the face of the provider population decreasing, right. uh, that is that alone, that problem alone is uh, is bigger than any one of us. And so, yeah, we spend. I mean, you know the numbers. We spend twice as much or more as every other industrialized country. In the world, there's 10,000 Americans every day that turn 65, and that will continue for several more years. Uh, by the year 2040, 22% of the population will be over 65 when Medicare originated back in the 60s. That number was 10%. Um, the cost of care is expected to rise. So this 4.1 or 2 or $3 trillion annual spend that we know in United States healthcare today is expected to be $6.2 trillion. By 2027, uh, yeah. the, the level of uninsured, um, you know, with the pandemic, with the public health emergency, allowed states and provided the funding to support um, an expanded Medicaid population. Now states are going through a redetermination process. I think most forecasters are looking at several million Americans now rolling off an insured product from Medicaid to being uninsured again. So the challenges are significant, um, uh, John, as you mentioned, and it's it's uh, it's an interesting time. And, and these macro challenges of cost and quality and safety and and equal access uh, to care are are real. And how the the industry really collaborates, like we've done in the last three years, and solve some of these macro challenges uh, will will determine you know our fate you know in in the future. So, Eric, if you were to bet on a technology right now, <laughs> pick, pick a horse. If you were to bet on one that you, you see as uh, being particularly promising 
to, that is vectoring into the problem set that we're facing. Is there is there one is there a is there a particular technology that you're interested in that you think is uh, is going to be the headliner? I think, think maybe maybe three things here, and maybe I'll start off with you know what what the last decade and the ability for the federal government to support EHR implementation has allowed us to do with with a whole lot of pain for the clinicians, but we have a lot of health records that uh, are digitized and and that amount of data is growing at a significant pace and that data is very very valuable to lead toward true precision medicine whether those are diagnostics or treatment therapies as well as personalized so understanding that you and i are very different and we might have the same condition, but we might get treated for it differently. Yep. And the the ability to drive that personalized precision approach and leverage the data that's been collected and then to incorporate two new huge data sets. So everything genomic related and everything sort of social determinant sits outside of healthcare, but it's more about the person and their care support and teams to use that data is, um, is, is an area that I'm really, really excited about. Um, I think we've all been uh, fascinated with generative AI and large language models, and we've seen almost overnight 100 million users of OpenAI's chat GPT. Um, Andreessen uh, just put out a a piece this week and funded a, a company out of stealth that's getting a lot of looks called Hippocratic AI. And it's uh, really using large language models that are built and designed for healthcare to reduce some of these transactions that, that are estimated to take about $50 of the, of, of a professional's time, you know, just for a couple minutes to reply yep. to a, to a voicemail or to an email or to a patient portal or to an individual question maybe leveraging uh, generative AI to do that for maybe 10 cents a transaction and, and reduce a lot of the cost and the burden associated with that. I think those, those, are, those are two. And I'm also intrigued with these sort of two-sided uh, platforms and marketplaces. Um, there's a lot of data mm-hmm. marketplaces that are being created. And while the industry combines a lot of data from a lot of different data sources and does that with privacy and security in mind. There are investments that are being made by life sciences and, and diagnostics and, and bio companies that, that can really use that data to accelerate uh, treatment therapies and uh, low-cost uh, therapies, uh, whether they're diagnostic or therapeutic, uh, in in ways that that are hard to understand for us today, but certainly we're on the cusp of and and all of the all of those every one of those requires just new collaboration that has to exist within the industry to be able to support those. Yeah, there's there's definitely some big horizons on all those fronts, and it's going to be when I think about what. Uh, what data has the power to do in healthcare as we are able to have the tools to make more and more meaning and more accurate meaning accurate's a big important part of that um 
it's it truly is exciting to to think about what can what can be possible because it has to get easier and uh, the ability for you know, anything that's going to help more providers provide more feels to me to be in the crossroad and in the in the crosshairs of what's important for sure. Well, a couple couple final questions here, Eric. As um, as a former CIO and now an investor, um, and, and as you are trying to kind of keep your uh, finger on the pulse of what's going on, what where do you look for input or you know, I guess intel when you're looking to solve some of these problems? What are some of the sources? You said email is not the source. Um, <laughs> and I did hear that conferences and, and events and the opportunity to get in uh, to, to listen and learn in those environments are definitely something that you uh, take in. But as you think back at your at your AmSurge days, what were some of the channels you were tuned into that you would be looking to get to get input from? Yeah, I'm in, I'm intrigued by, and I, d- I don't want to send the wrong message on email. So feel feel free to email me with questions. <laughs> I think it's a, you, you might be you might be part of a consensus there. I can I can uh, pretty much confirm that. <laughs> Um, I do email a lot of folks that I know, and I usually started with, I have a really quick question. So I try to set the stage up front. This is, this is going to be painless, but I have a really quick question. And if I could uh, borrow just a, a portion of your time, I'd be really helpful. I'm sort of intrigued by John. There's a new generation of creative writers that are uh, using, you know, different platforms than traditional media sources today and they're growing and their subscriber base and they're building communities with people that are really, really interested in continuing to learn. Um, so there's a there's a, a host of, of publications and, and podcasts that I'd like. If it's okay, I'll, I'll mention a few here. Um, I think Paul Keckley's The Keckley Report is, is, is a good periodical that's a free subscription that comes out once once a week. Paul's usually on time with that. It should hit your email uh, inbox at, on Monday morning. And he does a great job of summarizing the activities for the week with, with, um, with his narrative on it. Uh, there's a newsletter by the, by the name of Hospitology. Um, it's gaining a lot of momentum. Uh, we, I was able to meet up with the originator of that. It's more business-focused, transaction-focused but it's really trying to help all of us understand some of the financial transactions that are occurring that are going to impact the industry and, and the tech that's utilized. Um, on the, on the podcasting front, it's just sort of by nature and it's, it, it's out there a lot. I love Guy Raz's how I built this. I think the story of a founder or an entrepreneur is, is always interesting. I've learned a lot by being associated with. The Nashville Entrepreneur Center, um, we had a speaker not too long ago that talked about characteristics of an entrepreneur, and he, he, he phrased it as anger, curiosity, and then storytelling. And some of our most successful founders are those that identified a problem that drove them crazy to the point of being really, really angry about it, that nobody was solving it. And if you just think a little bit in healthcare about all the things that really bug you, that really drive you crazy sometimes, like filling out your personal information on a clipboard every time you visit a physician office, it drives somebody to the point that 
that they're anger, angry enough to do something about it. And that next phase is curiosity and thinking about solutions and talking to other people and really validating some of those ideas. And then that third phase is telling a story around it where it, it also has value. We talk a lot to our founders that it's generally their tech and their solutions and their devices. They generally work. The tricky part in healthcare is finding the right business model. And sometimes the person that's using the tech is not the person that's paying for it. And getting those business models right is part of that storytelling. Um, Podcasts and, and these new creative uh, writers and, and a few books, um, you know, lately, I think for me personally, Steve Case's book called The Rise of the Rest was around how different communities across the country were thinking about building the innovation ecosystems and some are by industry, some are just, uh, you know, generally tech solutions. Um, that, that, that I think is a real applicable book today and the work that I'm doing and how we're thinking about this uh, in Nashville. And, and I'm a big fan of a book. I might've mentioned it to you. It's, it's called the cold start problem and it's yep. about platform business models and two-sided networks. And the cold start problem is the first phase in building a tech solution that really does generate network effects and, and which side of the platform do you start out on? But it, it's similar to what we were talking about around these data marketplaces that you, you've got contributors of data and consumers of data and, and how do you build one side of the marketplace to ensure that when additional data is dropped into the marketplace, that it's valuable for everybody. And that's true network effects. I have a about a three quarter of the way written book summary of the cold start problem that I've been working on for a little too long. I need to finish it and maybe we'll, uh, <laughs> Put it out there in, in parallel to this podcast. So that's a great recommendation. Well, Eric, I am really grateful for your willingness to jump in here with us and have this conversation. Um, remember, folks, uh, do not make sure you check out the Telehealth Academy. And again, Eric, those dates are going to be September 21st. It'll be September 20th. For those of you in Nashville, it's going to be at the Bell Tower. It's an event venue around. Fourth and Koreans Vet Boulevard, right across the street from the Omni, I believe, down there. Yep, yep. So make sure you uh, you check that out. We'll we'll uh, put out some information along with the podcast so you can find it easily. Eric Threlkill, thank you so much for your time and jumping in here with us. It is uh, great to have you a part of our advisory board. And again, thank you for your generosity and how you have invested in and continue to invest in the healthcare community. It is, uh, it is really appreciated by many. And I just want to uh, take the time here as we conclude to, to say that again out loud. Uh, we really do appreciate you. Well, thanks. You're, you're kind. I've enjoyed this and uh, the industry and the community has been great for me and I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it and have many more years to go. That's right. <laughs>